You're listening to episode 426 of the UAV Digest. I'm Max Flight. And I'm David Vanderhoof. Hello, Max. Happy April. I can't believe, I'm not really sure where the heck the first quarter went of this year. I know. And we didn't plan any April Fool's joke, did we? We did, but we'll, we'll have to save it for another year. We tried. That's right. We tried, but uh, it didn't work out. But yeah, we'll save that. That'll be a good one. And, and you never know. You could always have an April Fool's joke in some other time other than April. Sure. Why not? We'll just call it a fool's joke. <laughs> yeah. But since you're here not to talk here, let's talk about jokes, but just to listen to a couple of fools. Let's talk about racing drones that deliver explosives, an aerial tanker that autonomously controls multiple drones, self-flying F-16s that test the Loyal Wingman program, the Condor Heavy Lift UAV wins its first customer, a new mini-light tactical UAS, Uavonics fights ADSB spoofing, and Archer Aviation and United Airlines plan air taxi service in Chicago. So with that, we're going to get started with racing drones. It's been a long time since we've talked about racing drones, Max. This is from TheEconomist.com, but evidently these are racing drones from Connecticut. <laughs> Never going to live that down. People don't, you know, that was so long ago, people aren't going to understand the, the reference. But we used to have this uh, teenager in Connecticut that was um, notable for weaponizing drones. Uh, first was with a with a gun, blowtorch, the flamethrower, the flamethrower. Yeah, yeah. Then it was with a gun, right? So we haven't heard about this probably now adult in, in a while, but that's the reference. So anyway, what's going on in Ukraine with racing drones, David? The war in Ukraine has been demonstrating the use of drones in a conflict like never before. So. Ukraine is using racing drones as loitering munitions. So what does that mean is you you fly it and you get it in the immediate area and it waits until a target appears. So in a video released last year, it looks like they're using uh, first-person view racing drones to provide this loaded with explosives. Yeah, in this video from last year, uh, they flew one of these things through an open doorway inside this building where... Uh, there were Russian troops, and once inside, it exploded. Uh, but there is, there's even this military unit, this Ukrainian military unit, um, that's been doing some of this stuff. And I love the name, David. They're they're called the Angry Birds. If you've ever watched Drone Racing League on television and RPV, and the way they maneuver these high-speed drones through obstacles and such. You could see that this technology loaded up with some explosives could be a very effective munition to attack inside a building or prepare a area because um, they're quite agile. So it, it does make common sense that, you know, anything eventually becomes a weapon. And the Angry Birds say they carry out a half a dozen racing drone attacks a day. Um, that's a lot of pigs that they're killing. Yeah, <laughs> but yeah, this is really changing the 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 face of war. And I mean, I suspect that in future conflicts, well, the people who plan, the military who plan for future conflicts, are probably watching all this uh, very carefully, and probably 
altering the offensive and defensive plans for uh, use of drones in a conflict because, uh, you know, what we're seeing here is, I mean, not only the big, large military uh, drones that, that we've talked about, but also these consumer-grade drones that are being used for all of these uh, military purposes. And I would th- think that in pretty much any future conflict, we're going to see drones play a significant role. With technology, nothing moves quicker than creativity and um, utility. So what comes out of a conflict like this is uses that you probably would have never thought of in a normal thing where due to desperation or utility or creativity, um, it becomes a new weapon system that you might not have thought of. So you are absolutely right, Max. I'm sure that our future scholars will be studying this war and probably will call it the first real, I mean, we've called wars in the Middle East um, the first drone wars, but this really is probably the real first drone war because it's drones are being used on all levels of the conflict from micro drones all the way up to um, we had a Reaper taken out. It is definitely the first drone war. So our next story comes from newatlas.com. Airbus's multi-role tanker transporter, MRTT, has autonomously controlled a drone using as a, as a flying test bed. The technology is called Automate. So, Max, why would a tanker need to be flying another airplane? Well, if they are uh, uncrewed, if they are um, drones, you know, the future is to refuel them just as, uh, I mean, the imperative is there just as much as for refueling manned aircraft. Uh, I guess, David, and you know more about this than I do, but I guess a big difference with refueling drones uh, like this from a aerial tanker is that uh, when you're refueling aircraft, you've got a human being in in both airplanes or both aircraft that are trying to maneuver into a precise position. And obviously with drones, you don't have the guy in the, in the uh, aircraft that's receiving the fuel. So it's a much more complicated issue. Air-to-air refueling, especially with um, a boom a boom tanker like the um, MRTT or say a KC46 or 135 the, the the boom is flown by a crewman inside the tanker and you literally you do fly the boom um, so the fact that you could have someone aboard the tanker control the aircraft that's being refueled there could be quicker communication between the boom operator and that pilot, whereas you would be talking about um, to a overseas position or whatever, and there might be a little delay, and that would co- that could be catastrophic. So, the other thing to think of with this is a long-term project, and something we've talked about is um, tankers being vital vital assets that they could eventually get loyal wingmen also that would be used to protect them as an asset, you know, um, small drones that are capable of air to air activities that can protect the tankers as they go through their, their circuit refueling manned aircraft. So 
there's a lot of real reasons for um, a tanker to have at the ability to fly another aircraft, you know. So we'll, we'll see what happens. Now, the test off the coast of Spain used four D20, DT-25 target drones, and they were positioned within 150 feet of the tanker. Automate controlled the relative navigation of the aircraft, communicated between the aircraft, and provided fine control guidance to avoid collisions. So um, I don't really think they actually took up and connected to the boom yet, but having an unmanned aircraft flying 150 feet next to a fully loaded tanker is quite an accomplishment. You know, a, a lot could go wrong there. And I mean, it, it's a slow process, even even using manned aircraft for tanking. To qualify an aircraft for tanking, is a long-term process, you know, and there's some still some aircraft that aren't qualified yet for the KC-46 uh, because of those systems. So it, this is going to be a slow, methodical process, but um, Airbus is definitely on its way, and it definitely would be an advertising feature for their tanker program, saying that we're look at what what our tanker programs can do over the Boeing product. And there's a, a term for this. They call it autonomous air-to-air refueling, or A4R is a short way of saying it, autonomous air-to-air refueling. Um, and uh, they're going to conduct some additional tests, as, as you might think. Uh, one of the things that the article talks about that they're going to do is add some, more, add some more drones. But they've obviously got a lot more, uh, a lot more work to do. But uh, you mentioned flying wingmen, uh, David, and we see some interesting news with the U.S. Air Force. Yeah, the Air Force um, has replaced their F-4 Phantoms or QF-4s, E's and G's, which were full-scale aerial targets or or FSATs, um, with the QF-16, which is A's, B's, C's, and D's. The old F-16s now are becoming full-scale aerial targets. So we've been flying... Um, optionally manned F-16s for about 10 years now. Um, It looks like the Air Force wants to collaborate and and push the F-16 further as in um, making it a loyal wingman. So the Air Force plans a fleet of at least 1,000 collaborative combat aircraft or CCAs. Now, we talked about that last week. But you have to be able to trust the autonomy. And the F-16 is a perfect aircraft to learn how the AI autonomy works for a loyal wingman. And obviously this is, you know, there's a lot of software involved here. That's the, um, the key new component, I guess. And, uh, you know, rather than wait for the CCA, the loyal wingman aircraft to be produced, uh, we can start now with the F-16s and start testing out the, uh, the software and the, uh, uh, the autonomy. Uh, so the Air Force has asked uh, for $50 million to start what they call Project Venom, which I guess stands for Viper Experimentation and Next Gen Operations Model. That's Project Venom. And the Air Force wants to experiment with six F-16s, test out and refine the autonomous software. And the nice thing about this is we know how an F-16 flies as a remotely piloted vehicle. So 
with the CCA being a new aircraft, you have two learning curves. You have the learning curve of the aircraft and you have the learning curve of the software and the AI. In this way, we're eliminating one of those variables by a, we have a known quantity with the F-16 or the QF-16. So um, it's really strictly on the autonomous and the software. Now, the F-16 will be flown um, with with a pilot on board and they will take off with the jets, and then once in the air, they will turn it over to the um, artificial intelligence. So Air Force Chief Scientist Victoria Coleman called Project Venom a bridge between a fully autonomous set of capabilities and a fully manned set of capabilities where we are today. Um, so it, it's definitely a a bridge program, but it's I think it's a really good, smart step into the get to the loyal wingman program that will work in parallel to the things like the ghost bat and the other, the um, other, other current candidates for the CCA. And it's also nice to know that the air force has finally given up with the term fighting Falcon and acknowledging that it's a viper. <laughs> you know, when, yeah. when they start calling the programs vipers, so it, it, it's definitely, it, it's nice to know that we've put fighting Falcon away from it, the disaster of the naming it was back in the seventies. Because that was the official name for the F-16, right? And then the, nobody, the pilots, nobody called it that. They all called it the, the Viper. Well, if, if you know anything about the history of that aircraft, and this is, this is one of my favorite stories, is the aircraft was originally going to be known as the Viper. However, there was a small group of individuals called Paramount Pictures who at the time had a small little television show called Battlestar Galactica and trademarked the term Viper. Okay, fine. We won't call it Viper. We'll call it Falcon. Well, there was a small little company called Dassault, and they had a business jet, and they trademarked the term Falcon. So thus, the Air Force came up with Fighting Falcon. But from day one, no one ever called it a Fighting Falcon. It was always a Viper. To these days, everybody calls it a Viper. It's like no one calls it a Thunderbolt 2. It's a Warthog. But it, it, is, it is kind of funny that the, the newest program is a Viper experimentation. So the Air Force is acknowledging that it's, it's a Viper and not a Fighting Falcon. All right. Well, David, I feel like we've just, I think, concluded the military portion of the show. And now we can- yeah, sorry about the heavy-loaded military front end there, folks, but... So let's talk about Canada. This is from Drone DJ. Drone Delivery Canada sold their first Condor heavy lift UAV to Transport Canada's agency. So a 1.2 million Canadian or $880,000 American sale has been valued. And uh, the company Drone Delivery Canada is going to provide also operating and testing support. And interestingly, uh, Air Canada was the sales agent who brokered the deal. I'm not sure about the relationship between Air Canada and Drone Delivery Canada and Transport Canada. That would be kind of interesting. But the Condor is, well, it's a helicopter. It's 22 feet long, 5 feet wide, 7 feet tall, just to give you an idea of the size. Cargo capacity, 4,000 pounds. So, uh, you know, when we think of How about 400 pounds? 
400 pounds. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> Quite a difference there. The Condor has suddenly got a really large wingspan due to my co-host. Oh, yeah. Uh, range, just over 124 miles and operating speed of about uh, 75 miles an hour. So, and like Max said, it's a conventional helicopter. It has a main rotor and a uh, tail rotor. Um, it kind of reminiscent looks like um, what we what we have at the museum called Stubby, which was a TH fifty five um, Osage um, or a Hughes three hundred, and it is um, basically a bubble with a tail boom and an engine, or if you know what an R-22 looks like, that's pretty much the class of helicopter we're looking for. So a three-phase test program will run through the end of 2023. The first is a series of short-range flights, then long-endurance trials, and lastly, operation in extreme environmental conditions, which, of course, if you're going to be flying in Canada, that latter one is probably one of the most important aspects of flying a vehicle. So we'll see what happens. I'm wondering, with Air Canada being the broker between Air Transport Canada and um, Drone Delivery, DDC, um, it'll be interesting to see if uh, Air Canada is thinking about this as a way for drone delivery for their delivery systems because I know they do do some work for the Canadian government. So it would be interesting to see how they're going with that. And this is, again, just the first of these Drone Delivery Canada is hopeful that this will lead to more sales to uh, to the government, uh, to the to Transport Canada in the future. And so hopefully this uh, this testing will work out in their favor. So the next one's from navalnews.com. So the survey copter unveils a Kappa X modular VTOL UAV. So as at the Special Forces Exposition, survey copter presented a new mini light tactical UAS called the Kappa X, and it's a modular design. It really is. This gives it a lot of flexibility, and you can configure the propulsion. Uh, units to be either VTOL or HTOL, either vertical takeoff and land or horizontal takeoff and land. The the wings can be configured for either hovering at high cruise speeds or for increased flight autonomy. And uh, they're they're two different. There's a long wing and a short wing, or, or a pair of long wings and a pair of short wings that can be attached. And uh, the payload bay can integrate different types of sensors depending on the mission. The modular system's really kind of cool because um, I like the 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 vertical propulsion is you you basically have an elongated um, boom two pail, tail booms where they've added the vertical rotors. If you remove those vertical rotors, you have the horizontal takeoff and landing thing, long wings and short wings. And the payload area is modular. So everything is designed for quick change um, and it does and the payload can integrate multiple sensors. So you're definitely getting um, a Swiss Army knife drone. Yeah, that's a good way to good way to put it. And the company Survey Copter has been an Airbus subsidiary since 2011. So this is an Airbus company, in fact, and uh, they're known for 
Well, designing, producing, as well as providing operational support for light tactical UAS. That's their thing. It is a very cool Swiss Army knife tactical UAS. So it'll be interesting to see if it goes into full production and interesting to see who the market would be for this. UAVONIX announces True Sky ADSB spoofing detection for Skylane UAS BV loss operations. Yeah, you put that in there, so I would have to say that, didn't you? No, that's this the is headline. From, <laughs> that's the UASvision.com. UA, Blame them. So you what? Blame, Blame them. them. <laughs> so UAVionics offers its Skyline UAS BV loss service to engage, manage the command and control infrastructure and assets across diverse frequency and audio types. But I didn't know, Max, d- d- that there was something called ADSB spoofing. Sure. So we all know how ADSB is used, and it uh, transmits a lot of information about an aircraft, in this case a drone, but generally an aircraft, its location, its speed, all a number of different factors. Well, it's not too difficult to spoof the US, uh, the ADSB rather uh, transmission, so that a drone may be in one location, but if you uh, spoof the ADSB transmission, uh, you could make it look like the drone is somewhere else to those who are receiving the, the transmission. So uh, UAvionics has been working on this problem. Now, they already have this thing called Skyline, um, which we can go into in just a second. But uh, the interesting new part is this True Sky ADSB spoofing detection. It integrates with Skyline. And what it does is it validates that a particular ADS-B signal is actually coming from an aircraft and not being broadcast to spoof the signal. Now, you can think of all kinds of nefarious purposes for ADS-B spoofing. You can uh, transmit false transmissions about an aircraft's position or velocity or identification. And it also interferes with detect and avoid systems and air traffic control systems. So with all that, it compromises airspace awareness and risks airspace safety and security. So how does UAvionics True Sky detect spoofing? It works with a network of low-cost, dual-frequency ADS-B ground receivers. The aircraft signal is confirmed to come from the aircraft's position. It's kind of like a triangulation, Max, was the way I was reading at it. It was you basically have multiple ADSB sensors and it calculates the aircraft's position. It compares it to the position stated in the ADSB transmission. So I would see why this would come really handy for law enforcement as well as um, military actions, you know, whereas you're trying to track a UAS and it's reporting somewhere else. Now, Going back to the Skyline, Skyline is UAvionics cloud-based command and control network. And it combines things like fleet management and network health monitoring, uh, detect and avoid between multiple radio networks and ground stations. So when this uh, spoofing detection uh, system, TrueSky, is integrated with it, it uses Doppler, this is the triangulation kind of part of it, it uses Doppler information, multilateral timing, and aircraft kinetics. And so it calculates a validation score 
for each aircraft, which indicates the confidence and safety margin required for BV loss operations. And so uh, this will actually display on the Skyline platform the aircraft that is detecting, and they're color-coded based on the confidence scores. So I don't know what colors they're using, but let's say that there's... Red, yellow, and green. Red, yellow, and green. Exactly. If there's a number of unmanned aircraft flying in the in the airspace that's being monitored, and maybe if all of the ADSB transmissions uh, are validated, then maybe all, you know, it's all, they're all green. But if there's a yellow one, it's maybe not so. And if there's a red one, that indicates that, you know, the likelihood is that that is, uh, you know, is being spoofed. So it sounds like a very powerful system and uh, something that's, you know, really addresses a, a potential major issue with ADSB. And ADSB is a driver for drone identification. And flights in the national airspace will definitely need this kind of ID. And it all sort of rolls together. And the ability to um, track spoofed items is really important. So last story is we needed to touch on it because we normally cover this stuff. But we went into uh, quite great lengths on Airplane Geeks uh, this week's episode. Um, But... Archer Aviation and United Airways established an air taxi route in Chicago. This, of course, we've talked about Archer uh, United purchasing or ordering um, Archer's aircraft, but now they actually have a route set up to fly those aircraft. And I don't know why the headline says United Airways. I think they meant to say United Airlines. That's what they refer to it in the rest of the article, and that's... That's what was announced. Archer and United announced that they are going to launch an air taxi service in Chicago in 2025. And in in Chicago, well, this is flying passengers uh, between the downtown area and O'Hare International Airport. Now, downtown, they already have a Vertiport, uh, which uh, helicopters use to you know provide service like that. And so they're going to use that Vertiport to uh, fly Archer aircraft uh, between there and the the airport. We've spoken about Archer Aviation in the past, and we talked about their prototype called the Maker, uh, which is a you know a smaller prototype. The production aircraft is the Midnight, and that's what they're going to use or what they're planning to use for air taxi service. They say in 2025. And the flight from ORD to um, Vertiport, Chicago, will be a 10-minute trip. Um, one of the things they also say is the average mission charge time will be 10 minutes. So you're talking about an air taxi service. Um, your flight time's 10 minutes. Probably, though, in one of the most crowded airspaces in the world, if not the United States. Um, so it'll be interesting to see how that develops. The Midnight has 12 electric motors driving six leading-edge engines uh, and six trailing-edge propellers. The leading-edge ones can transverse um, up to 90 degrees or a little beyond 90 degrees for vertical takeoff or down 90 for forward flight. The the rear ones are primarily a vertical uh, or for uh, lift only. And the Maker uh, carries up to four passengers plus a pilot. So this starts out being being manned, but you know, it's important here because 
in many concepts, ultimately an air taxi service or urban air mobility scenario, um, you start to look at or start to think about autonomous aircraft. So, I mean, this is this is kind of the first step. And also to David's point about operating in a really congested airspace, you really do want to start out with uh, piloted aircraft. You're you're not going to go straight to autonomous aircraft servicing uh, flyers like that right from the get-go. So it makes sense. One of the other things that um, Rob, our co-host on Airplane Geeks, had brought up was how much is this going to cost? The Vertiport Chicago makes perfect sense, but I'm wondering how it's going to connect in ORD. I mean, I don't know how well, I don't know O'Hare as well as I should, but um, that airport, it will be interesting to see where they would, where these taxis would be landing or, or operating from in that airport. There's still a lot of logistics, even though it is kind of nice that we actually have a point A and point B and Somewhere in there will be a straight line, but there's still a lot of logistics to overcome, not to mention you need a properly effective certified flying prototype, but definitely starting to feel real, especially with this scenario where you actually have two legitimate points where it's going, you know, other than some of the places like Dubai where they've talked about flying from hotel to hotel, it, it, it's not as nebulous. This is definitely not as nebulous as some of the other at trials that have occurred. This is definitely a point to point. It's clearly the right operation from getting from, you know, you're good. You'll have either a helicopter an Uber or the train to get downtown. So this is another, another way of getting to downtown into the old vertiports or the vertical takeoff and landings or sh- or short takeoff and landing stole ports that we were going to have in the late 70s where you were going to go from go from downtown to downtown and not and not these outskirt airports but we'll see um you know we we were George has been born we'll still we're still waiting for our flying cars <laughs> and there's a good video about this announcement and we'll have that in the show notes so you, uh, be sure to check those out. We've seen the prototype, the maker uh, flying. There's lots of videos of that. But in this video, which, of course, has a lot of animation because the midnight doesn't exist yet, but um, you get a really good view of what the design of this aircraft is like and how it's going to be used. So It is attractive. It is, yeah. It's very interesting kind of uh, – I mean, it's kind of, I don't know what, it's kind of sci-fi sort of, it's got a tinge of, um, I don't know, being something exciting and new and different. Yeah. If you thought of a flying car or an air taxi, it definitely looks like something you would see in your mind. So hopefully, you know, the old saying, if it looks good, it'll fly good. Well, Well, hopefully that will go on. So I think on that note, Max, I think we should wrap this one up. What do you think? Okay. Thanks for listening. We really appreciate it. You can find show notes for this and every episode at the UAVdigest.com. Check it out. See that uh, video of the Archer aircraft. I think you'll enjoy that. And, of course, you can find us on social media, on Facebook, on Twitter, if you can spell UAV Digest. Um, likewise, you can find Max and I on LinkedIn, Also, you can um, find us on our Slack listener team or any other way. You can contact us through email, and that would be feedback at the UAVdigest.com. 
So with that, I'm going to say this is David in Delaware. And Max in Connecticut. Thanks for listening.